Good songs this morning. Again, good singing. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 8 this morning. And we'll go to the end of the chapter, the second half of this chapter on charity. The title of the message, The Part Gives Way for the Perfect. Last time we were together, we considered two very important aspects of charity, or what we often call love. First, we discuss the biblical definition of love, and we express specifically that, that it is not for us to define love. The Bible defines love. We have no authority to define love for ourselves. We only have the authority to take what the Word of God says, to draw it out, and then to apply it. We're speaking specifically of biblical love. And the second application, as we understand the context within which 1 Corinthians 13 is given, is the expectation that we would use our spiritual gifts, the gifts that we have been given, whether you've identified it or not, that as we exercise ourselves in the body of Christ, as we identify those gifts, use those gifts, serve one another, that we would do so with a underlying foundation of charity, of, of biblical love. Selfless love. Selflessness. Really. Now today we're going to finish chapter 13 and we're going to take a bit of a step back. Uh, take a, a, a bit of a panorama, if you will, and explore the purpose of the spiritual gifts from a broader perspective. We've spent time considering the purpose of spiritual gifts as it relates to the church and how they are meant to serve the church. We've looked into what the spiritual gifts are, talked about that a little bit, um, looking at the variety of gifts, where they're presented and how they might be presented. We've spent some time considering the necessity of those gifts and the necessity of using them properly. We'll talk a little bit more about that in 1 Corinthians 14. And that is why, because we have gifts in 12 and 14, we know that 13, in its context, it's not a parenthetical, we know it's speaking about gifts. We know that, that Paul is talking within the context of how we are using our gifts in the local church in chapter 13. Now it's great if you take 1 Corinthians 13, and you, you, you use it to talk about love and how we have to love our wives and how we have to love our children. That's all important and that's all valid as an application. But what Paul is actually speaking of is how you operate in the local church, one among another, as you use your gifts for the Lord. Let's not forget that. Paul's teaching on charity is meant to impart deep spiritual lessons. It's meant to take us beyond what we see in the context of spiritual gifts and show us what is really happening and where it all fits in. And by God's grace, that is what we're going to do today. We're going to look at where it fits into God's overall plan. In these six verses, we will see in a much more real way why disagreements over the gifts and selfish use of gifts has been given... um, the, excuse me, but the selfish use of the gifts we have been given by God is not only outside of God's expectations for what He planned when He gave us the gifts, but is in fact counterproductive to the existence of the churches, um, to the church and, and of its purpose. So in other words, what we're going to see today is that as we fail to use the gifts properly outside of the context of love, not only are we not reaching our fullest potential, but we are actually damaging the local church, its function, and its purpose. So let's step right in. Let's read the entire six verses together, beginning in verse 8 of 1 Corinthians 13. Charity never Faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. Recall last time we were together, Paul presented the manifold attributes of charity. 
Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity envieth not. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up. Doth not behave itself unseemly. Seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked. Thinketh no evil. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. We could say that verse 8 presents the last attribute of charity. We didn't present it last week. But it is that charity never faileth. Why is it so important that we exercise the spiritual gifts that God has given to us in charity? Why is it that charity compels our exercise of the gifts? And what does it mean, as it says here, that charity never faileth? Let's answer a few of those questions together. The word faileth in the text literally means to fall away or to drop away. As we look in the context, along with what we know the word means, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that that charity will never fail in its, in its object. We know that that's not the case. Sometimes we show love, we express love, and the other person is so selfish or proud that, that it doesn't really... Um, it's not successful in reaching them. There are people that we reach in love with the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not necessarily that love is still going to shine into their hearts. The conviction of the Holy Spirit will be there as it manifests, but it's not necessarily always going to meet the end that we would desire it to. But what this is speaking of, as it says, charity never faileth, as we understand the context that, that came and is to come, is that charity never will cease. Charity will never cease. It will abide. It will continue. Love, the fruit of love, the reality of love is not something that is temporary. It is something that is continuous. It will never cease. We'll see what Paul means. We'll explore this idea further in the next couple of verses. Notice what Paul says as he continues in verse 8. So charity never faileth, he says, but, here's our contrast, whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, Paul lists three of those gifts that we have spoken of in the remainder of this verse. He lists, lists prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. And with each gift, Paul associates it with a time when it will fail, when it will cease when it will no longer operate. But not charity. Charity will not fail. Charity will not end. You notice there, prophecies, that word says, will be made ineffective. Tongues will be made to stop. And knowledge, again, that same word as the first, will be made ineffective. Well, now we have some more questions we need to ask. Why did Paul use these three gifts? When are these gifts supposed to cease? And what point is Paul trying to make by saying this, by saying that these will cease? Well, we can get a pretty good idea from the context we've already seen. Remember back in verses 1, 2, and 3 of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul spoke about the fact that even if we do exercise these gifts, if we don't do it in love, then they're worth nothing. And now he's saying that these gifts will at some point cease. So let's answer these questions together. Question number one, why these three gifts? Well, there are two prevailing theories that we could launch off of as we think about it. The first is that Paul is specifically speaking about these three gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge. The other idea, the other possibility is that Paul is using these gifts as a template, as an example to reference all gifts, to reference the, the, the entirety as we've presented it of the spiritual gifts. A point could be made for either interpretation, but when we look within the context of chapters 12, chapter 13, and even chapter 14, it strongly suggests that Paul is using these three gifts, prophecy, tongues, and knowledge, as a example of all of the gifts eventually ceasing. 
He's using those which perhaps were more popular or more desirable as a generalization to represent all the spiritual gifts. In other words, it is likely that what Paul is saying here is not that these specific gifts only will cease, but that all spiritual gifts at some point will cease. And as we go further along in the context, I believe it will bear this assertion out quite nicely. And so that is the the um, assumption or the interpretation upon which we're operating. That is, Paul speaks of these three gifts at the beginning in chapter 13, verses 1 through 3, he spoke of tongues, he spoke of prophecy, he spoke of knowledge, he spoke of understanding, he spoke of giving, and now he speaks of prophecy and tongues and knowledge again. So it seems as though he's using these gifts as a generalization for any gift. If we use any gift outside of charity, it's useless. Every gift will cease. And that's the interpretation that we're going to assume as we go forward. Now, the second question is this. When do these cease? When do these cease? The reason why we must ask this question is because there's debate around it. Cessationalists, those who, like we, believe that the sign gifts are no longer valid, for this age, have taken this passage and they've really caught on to those words, tongues shall cease, or tongues they shall cease. And they've said, see, what greater proof do you need that tongues have ceased? After all, it says, tongues shall cease. Well, the problem is that interpretively, this is difficult to justify. The first reason why it's difficult for us to say prophecies failing, tongues ceasing, and knowledge passing away, why that is really hard to say it's already happened, is because we don't know what this knowledge is. We believe that tongues have ceased. But the reasons I have given you for that have nothing to do with 1 Corinthians 13. It has to do with the fact that tongues were meant to be assigned to Israel, that tongues were prophesied of in Joel, that that tongues are, and then in 1 Corinthians 14, that Paul presents very clearly that tongues are for unbelieving Jews. That's the whole purpose. That's why they were there. And that purpose has since fallen away. However, as we look at prophecy and knowledge, this becomes a little more difficult. We could make a case that prophecy has ceased in the foretelling ministry. The Word of God is finished. It is completed revelation. We don't need men coming and saying, Thus saith the Lord, and giving new revelation, because God has completed His revelation. God's not adding or taking away from His Word. However, we recognize, as we've talked about with when we talked about the spiritual gifts, that the gift of prophecy is more often a foretelling ministry. Declaring what the Lord has already said. Taking the Word of God and declaring it to God's people and reminding them of it. And we have, as far as we have interpreted it, said that that gift has not necessarily passed away. And, <coughs> excuse me. And then we have this idea of knowledge. The Word is simply the Word for knowledge. To know something. And it's not given any clearer definition in the Word of God. And so it is very difficult for us interpretively to say, okay, prophecy will fail, tongues will cease, knowledge shall pass away, this has happened. Because though we would believe that tongues have ceased, the prophecy and the knowledge, it's very hard. we cannot dogmatically look back and say, yes, this has happened. So interpretively, we're already on shaky ground if we try to use this passage to say that tongues have ceased, that these things have ceased. Second, as we continue through the passage, we will see the condition upon which these will cease. And that's in verse 10. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. Please follow me. We'll jump back in just a moment. He says, but when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. And so he says, we prophesy in part, we know in part, and then when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So what we do know is that this time of ceasing will happen when perfection has come. Now, that brings us to the next step in our interpretation. When has 
did or will perfection come? Has perfection come? Well, there's a good argument here by the cessationalists as well that say, well, perfection came, perfection being a word in the Bible that doesn't mean sinlessly perfect, but complete, having all that is necessary to its nature and kind. So perhaps perfection was the word of God. When the word of God was complete, then these gifts fell away. Possible. Possible. That depends on whether or not we say all of the gifts or just some of the gifts fell away. Because we know that when the Word of God came, all the gifts didn't fall away, did they? Absolutely not. Second, the second problem with this, find in verse 12. Please jump ahead with me. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So Paul equates this time when perfection comes with a time when we'll see something face to face. When we shall know even as also we are known. Now imagine if if the thing that were perfect were the word of God. <clears throat> that means when completed revelation came, those believers saw something clearly as if face-to-face, that the New Testament church only saw darkly. That they knew something in the same way that they are known. We don't really see that bear out in church history. That, that when completed revelation came, all of a sudden the churches got a super special leg up from that which the New Testament church had, the early church had. Paul seems to think that when perfection comes, these gifts will fall away because they won't be needed. Not because we'll have something better, but because the knowledge will be right there. See, for me, I guess as I think about it and in my own experiences, simply having the Bible, completed a revelation, has not changed the fact that there are many questions to be answered hasn't changed the fact that I still need someone to open the Word of God and expound it for me. And so I don't believe history bears out that the early church saw something darkly, which we now, because we have the completed revelation, see clearly, so that we don't need those particular gifts anymore. And the point I'm making is that it doesn't seem likely that the completed canon is the mark at which the church went from seeing darkly spiritually to seeing face to face. However, as we look at the scriptures, I do see a point in, in history where this does seem to happen. And we'll come to that in just a few minutes. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, let's a- ask our third question in relation to verse 8. What is Paul's point? So, why these three gifts? Well, I believe that they're just generalizations. Susanna was showing me last week in her Bible. She said, she, she asked me a question based upon some, some notes in her study Bible that sh- that contradicted what I said. And I told her, yes, some of this is interpretive. The way I have gone with my understanding of the text is a little bit different from the way other men in the church have gone. That's okay. I believe I can biblically defend my reasons. I believe we are tracing the reasons through and contextually they are good and valid. However, there is interpretive debates here. And that's what I'm trying to say as we answer these questions. This is the way I believe the scriptures bear out. If you disagree with me, uh, I understand. Make sure that you have right reasons. But uh, as I look at the text, this, this seems to be how it bears out interpretively. So these three gifts, I believe they're generalization for all the gifts. When do they cease? We'll talk about that in a little bit. What is Paul's point? As we continue through the passage... I believe we'll find this point quite clearly enunciated. But as we do so, let me remind you what this chapter is about. It's about charity as it relates to the exercising of spiritual gifts in the church. Don't forget that as we seek Paul's point. Look at me in verse 9 and 10. Paul says, For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. You see how many times part was used there? If you didn't, up here you can tell, three times, 
part was used in those two verses. Part literally meaning a portion of a greater whole, or a part of a greater whole. Now this analogy is not foreign to us, is it? You remember back in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul likened each one of us with our gifts to a piece of the body of Christ. Verses 23 and 24, 1 Corinthians 12 said this, And our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness, for our comely parts have no need, but God hath tempered the body together, having given more abundant honor to that part which lacked. What is Paul speaking of there? He's speaking of each member of the church, their particular gifts for the church, and how they're used in the church. And we see certain certain people that have gifts and and they're, they're just fine. And then you have other people that their gifts lend them to, to, to being less comely. They lack some things. And yet they still bind together. We talked about the pillow analogy last week, right? That you have the Calvin stitching on the front of that pillow that I made. That would be the more comely part. The part that people see. The part that's beautiful. The part that lacks nothing. But the part that keeps the pillow together is the invisible stitching in the fluff. So you stitch around, you stuff all the fluff in, you close that off. That's what makes the pillow. You don't see it. You don't brag about it. But that's what the pillow is. Not the Calvin on the front. So in chapter 12, Paul calls each gift and each member that has those gifts a part of a larger whole known as the body of Christ. Here in chapter 13, Paul states that these gifts, that each of these gifts is only manifest in part. We know in part. We have partial knowledge. We have uh, uh, knowledge as a part of something greater. We prophesy in part. We have partial prophetic ability. Uh, only to the extent that we know what to say. Only to the extent that we've been gifted to do so. But Paul says there's coming a day where we won't need to speak in part anymore. Where we won't need to prophesy in part anymore. Because fullness will come. Perfection will come. When that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. What Paul is saying here is there's coming a day when everything will be made known. You won't need to speak in part because it will all be manifest in front of you. You won't need to only, you won't only know a part. You'll know the whole. And on that day, there will no longer be need for those who dedicate their time and their effort to study and to devote their lives to the proclamation of the revealed word of God because everyone will know it. It will be known. Now think for me for a moment of the time in the Bible which references when things will be made known. When the need for prophecy, knowledge, these gifts that God has given to believers for the church shall be done away. Well, at the end of this age, the Scriptures speak of the return of Jesus Christ to this earth. Jesus Christ called in John 1 the Word of God, the one through whom God has spoken, who dwelt among men and will dwell among men again. On that day, as the Scriptures present it with our resurrected bodies, we will not read the Word of God. We will not study the Word of God. We will not memorize the Word of God, for we will see the Word of God. The Word of God will be with us face to face. Perhaps that's the day that Paul was speaking of. The day when that which we know in part and we understand in part and we see in part will give way to that which we know in full and understand in full because we'll be standing face to face with the Word of God. I believe that's what Paul is speaking of here. That the day the Word of God comes to dwell among us in the person of Jesus Christ will be the day when perfection has come. Completion has come. When that which is perfect is come. Well, then Paul says something interesting in verse 11. He says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Paul gives an analogy here of his own life. He states something that we may say is obvious, though as we look at our society, maybe not so obvious. When you're a child, 
You act like a child. You think like a child. And that's okay because you're a child. You think on a certain plane. You act a certain way. There are certain things that are just, that's the way children act. My daughters act like children. They're silly. They're selfish. They want to play. They want what they want. They don't appreciate learning as an adult might. They barely appreciate structure. They don't understand politics. They don't know how it is that food stays on the table. All they know is they're hungry and there's food that comes to them. They don't understand how a roof stays over their heads. All they know is that there's a roof over our heads. They don't know the toil and the effort and the prayer and the work and and uh, the money and everything that goes into their living. They just live. Praise God that they can do that. But as they get older, they'll begin to understand that the reality that they've perceived is not really all that was to it. Yes, food does end up on the table. Yes, there is a roof over their head, but as it turns out, that takes forethought, planning, effort, prayer. They see the need for responsibility because their actions have consequences. They'll begin to put away the toys and the immaturities and become responsible adults who do responsible things. Paul's analogy serves as a comparison of this life as believers. We learn of God through the Scriptures which He has given. We taste the joys of heaven through the Holy Spirit's indwelling. But we still live in this flesh. We still have the fears. We still have the concerns. Our minds limit us in our understanding of God. The revelation of God only takes us so far. We bicker and we complain among ourselves about interpretation of passages. We have ulterior motives as to why we want passages to say what they say. We've got all of these things that are are compounding so that we are only knowing in part, we are only prophesying in part, our gifts are only as good as our submission to the Word of God, only as good as our bodies will allow us to be, only as good as our minds are capable, only as good as this human fleshly situation allows them to be. I want to give to the church, but I have some limitations. And that limitation is based upon how much I have to give. I want to tell you everything the Bible says, but I have some limitations. First biggest one is my mind. I can't tell you everything the Bible says. I don't know it all. The second limitation is that we live in this world of time. Which means I have a clock that's always ticking. Always ticking. And I want it just to stop and for it to stay 11 o'clock for the next six hours, but that's not going to happen. And we're going to get hungry because our bodies need food. And we're going to get sleepy because our bodies need rest. And there are limitations to our ability to know, to our ability to understand, to our ability to even tell others what we know. My voice can only hold out so long. I'm so thankful for the past couple of weeks and the last three weeks Four weeks, I've had two weeks off. It's helped my voice. I don't know if you've heard it in the singing. But before vacation, I couldn't hit anything high anymore. It was really terrible. After a little bit of rest, I can finally start singing again a little bit. Take care of my voice. These are limitations that are upon us because of the human condition. So we've only tasted Even the very godliest man who ever walked the earth has nothing more than a child's understanding of the glory, the majesty, and the power that is our God. And so Paul, as he speaks of that which we prophesy in part and we know in part, and when that which is perfect is come, that which is in part will be done away. And then he says, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I thought I was a child, I understood as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. He says there's coming a day when all that, the, all of the, the basics that we're doing in this life as Christians will give way for something far more full. Far more majestic. Far more incredible than we could have ever understood. We'll become spiritual adults when we finally see the Lord in His fullness. Paul gives another analogy in verse 12. He says, for now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. So now he's contrasting where he is now with where he will be at this time when perfection comes. 
Paul likens the exercise of our spiritual gifts to looking through something that is akin to misted glass. We just got some new glass. The stained glass has been repaired. Unfortunately, it was be, it was repaired by being taken out up there. And that glass up there is misted. Light comes in. If I were to go up there and look out that window, I could see shapes, shadows. But that's about the extent to which I will be able to see out that window. Shadows moving by. Light coming in. Paul likens his exercising of his spiritual gifts and his Christian life to seeing through the glass darkly. You can see the light coming in. You can see shadows on the other side, but that's about all we've got. You can tell there's something happening on the other side. You can discern movement, but you have no capacity to see clearly the other side. We have been given what Paul calls in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 14, the earnest of our inheritance. He also speaks of it in 1 Corinthians chapter, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 4 and 5. The Spirit of God is said to be, in our lives, for lack of a better term, the down payment of our salvation. What does that mean? The earnest of our inheritance? A down payment is an advance. It's an advance payment that assures the person you're paying that they will receive the rest. You put a down payment and then they do the work or give you what it is that you are paying for on the understanding that because you gave the first bit, you will give the rest. It's a partial revelation of a greater whole that is to come. As God describes the Holy Spirit's indwelling, the reality of the Spirit of God within us and the manifestation of His fruit in our lives, the reality of the gifts that He's given to us, He says that this is all only the down payment of that which is to come. The fact that we have those revelations, the manifestations, the gifts, this reveals to us that we have the Spirit of God, that we will, that the rest is yet to come and it, it will come, but it's only a part. We're only seeing through the glass darkly as to what's on the other side of perfection. So as we consider what Paul is saying here, I might describe it this way. The fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit that you have been given by virtue of your salvation as they operate in your life give you but a small taste of the realities of heaven. A small taste of the glory of God, a small taste of His power to change lives, a small taste of the compulsion to operate contrary to our flesh, a small taste of the fullness of joy that comes from being in full communion with our Lord, the blessings of Christian fellowship, the peace that passes all understanding. We experience these through the Holy Spirit in our lives as we walk in fellowship with God, but our temporary opportunities to see the power of the Holy Spirit pale in comparison to the eternal realities that they represent. The best is yet to come, folks. We have something waiting for us that we cannot fathom. We see through a glass, but only darkly. It's misted. We're seeing shadows of glory. We're seeing the light shine in from glory. Even the greatest day of glory that you have felt through the Holy Spirit's empowerment on your life is only but a taste of what we have coming to us one day. Isn't that exciting? Isn't that amazing? We can't, literally, your mind cannot fathom. Try to, try to fathom the eternality of God. No beginning, no end. You can't do it. We, our minds cannot understand no beginning. Because everything has a beginning. Right? Everything has to have a beginning. You can't have something that always was. Where did always was come from? It, it, it's hard to think about. You know, one day our mind won't have those limitations. One day we'll be beyond that. We know in part, we know that God is eternal. We just can't know what that means. How, how that happens. What, uh, one day. We'll know. We've heard about streets of gold. Trees with different fruit every month. We've heard about the New Jerusalem, the glory of God. 
We can picture it. We can draw it. We can imagine it. We can write about it. We can try to describe it with this imprecise thing we call language. But one day, we're going to step into it and it's going to be well beyond anything that our wildest imaginations could have fathomed. What an exciting day. No living man has the capacity to understand the fullness of joy that we will know one day in the presence of our Savior. But we can get a taste of it as we yield ourselves to the Spirit through the manifestation of the fruit and the gifts. My father really likes smoking meat. He'll get up early in the morning. He'll start that smoker. He'll often slow cook meat for better than 12 hours before we have it that evening. One of the best parts about my father slow cooking meat is maybe, say, eight hours into the process, he'll come in with just a, a, a little chunk of it. And he'll cut it up into little pieces and you're starting to get hungry for dinner. And he'll place that savory meat on a plate and say, okay, everybody, take, take a taste. And you taste that meat and, man, that's good meat. It's tender, it's juicy, it smells amazing, it tastes amazing, and you know that in just a couple of hours, you look at that clock and you say, the, the rest is coming. I don't have to just have one piece and, oh, okay, now I'm really hungry, because that I can, I can cut off as big of a piece as I want, the rest is coming. A small taste of that which is yet to come. When we come to maturity, when that which is in part gives way to that which is complete, when we step out of this life and into eternity, as Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5, when our mortality gives way unto life. That little taste that we've had will become reality. That which we saw through misted glass, we will see in perfection face to face, that which we know in part will become so real to us that we will know it in the same way that we are known of God. It'll be right there. We'll touch it, we'll feel it, we'll see it, we'll taste it, we'll know it. On that day, everything will become clear. As God looks down upon me, He looks with knowledge and understanding. He knows my future as He knows my past. He knows what awaits me. He knows the joys and peace that I will experience one day, but I don't know it save by faith. And one day my faith will become sight. And that's the day that Paul is describing. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm seventeen fifteen: As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. That was the hope of the psalmist. So what does this all mean? What does any of this have to do with charity, you ask? I'm glad you asked. Let's answer it. Look with me at verse 13. And now abideth, Paul says, faith, hope, charity, these three, But the greatest of these is charity. Paul gives us in this verse a unique perspective that, for lack of a better way to describe it, arranges our understanding of the gifts and fruits of the Spirit into more or less a system of priorities. What Paul has been trying to do in these verses, all of 1 Corinthians 13, is to show us that if we're going to put any time and any effort into developing some physical manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our lives, We should not necessarily be focusing in on the spiritual gifts, certainly learn it, certainly know them, all of these things, but what we should be focusing in on is upon how we conduct ourselves within the realm of these gifts, on faith, love, and hope. If you want to place any effort into bettering yourself as a child of God, your effort could find no better focus than to focus on godly charity. In ancient Egypt, kings were buried with their treasures all around them because it was their belief in their pagan culture that the kings could take all of their riches with them into the afterlife. So they would embalm them and they would put them in lavish tombs and they would put all their riches around them so that they'd have plenty of riches in the afterlife. Well, we know this to be false, don't we? When we die, you can't take anything material with you. It all stays here. 
All of the goods that you amass in this life are good for nothing in eternity. However, just because there is nothing material in this life that does not bear, uh, that bears consequences in the next, this does not mean that nothing you do matters. In fact, Paul says there are three things in this life that will abide and echo in the world to come. And those three, as he presents them, are faith, hope, and charity. Faith, charity, hope are, we might say, the very foundational manifestations of Christ-likeness in the life of the believer. Paul describes this in a conversation he has to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says this in verse 3, as he's remembering their salvation, he says, remembering without ceasing your work of faith and your labor of love and patience of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of God and our Father. Those three elements, faith, love, and hope, are those elements that Paul says, this is what I remember when I remember you, that you manifested faith, love, and hope, that you manifested the gospel of Jesus Christ and your salvation through these elements. And he would go on to say in verses 9 and 10 this, For they themselves, that would be others, show us what mannering of entering in we had unto you and how ye turned from God to idols. That's a work of faith. And to serve the living and true God. That's a labor of love. And to wait for his son from heaven. And that is indeed the patience of hope. Whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. So Paul says, as you turn from, uh, to God from your idols, that is faith. As you devoted yourself to serve the living and the true God, that is love. As you waited for his son from heaven, that is hope. This is how you develop the Christian life. Through faith, love, and hope. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us without faith it is impossible to please God. Romans chapter 14 verse 23 tells us that whatsoever is not of faith is sin. If we are doing something in faith, we know that we are bearing out eternal reward. Paul calls for us in Colossians chapter 1 verse 23 that we would not be turned away from the hope of the gospel that being the faithful expectation of that which is to come in our lives. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19 calls hope the anchor of our soul. It is our earnest expectation of that which is to come that motivates us in this life to act. It grounds us firmly on the side of righteousness to navigate the perils of this life. As we have hope in that which is to come, it motivates us for this life. Finally, Paul speaks of charity. That which has consumed our thoughts for the past two weeks in 1 Corinthians 13. This is the manner in which we live out our lives. The manner in which we exercise our gifts. The manner in which we serve our Lord. And we saw in the first several verses of 1 Corinthians 13 that if we fail to exercise our Christian life in charity, then we have failed altogether. Just as we cannot please God if that which we do is not of faith, if that which we do is not compelled by true love, it is worthless before the throne of God. But on the contrary, those things that we do which are compelled by biblical love, as Paul defined it earlier in this chapter, will abide forever. They'll follow you into eternity. 1 John 4, 7-12 Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. Herein is love, he continues to say. Not that we loved God, but that he loved God, uh, us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man hath seen God at any time. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us and his love is perfected in us. For God is love, the passage said. Romans 13.10 Love worketh no ill to his neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Galatians 5.14 For all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. 
So even though we are looking through that glass darkly, even though we're only seeing shadows on the other side, even though we only know in part and see in part, we can know this, ladies and gentlemen, that whatever is awaiting us on the other side, whatever heaven will be like when we stand face to face with our Savior Jesus Christ, when that which is perfect is finally known, when that which is seen, when we know even as also we are known, on that day what we will see without doubt will be the very embodiment of love. It will abide. The object of our faith, the fullness of our hope, the embodiment of our charity will meet us on the other side and His name will be Jesus Christ. So if you truly want a taste of the divine, if you want just a little larger slice of that meat that's been smoking for hours, if you want your sneak preview to tell you just a little bit more about God than maybe the other people that you know. If you desire more heavenly rewards to cast at the feet of your Savior, you can do no better than to make the First Corinthians 13 definition of love the very cornerstone of your life. And this is Paul's point, and this will be our application as we close today. Three simple points. Not even really points, just kind of one point. Learn to love, determine to love, and strive to love. You know, all three are a little bit different. You learn what love is, and that's not going to make you love. It's just simply going to tell you that that's what love is. Then you have to determine to obey. It's just like anything in your life, right? You learn what God expects, then you have to determine to obey what God says, and then you have to strive to do it. And get up when you fall. If you're going to obey God in any area of life, you need to first learn it, then determine it, then do it. Strive for it. Obey it. Make it happen. As you live among your neighbors and family and friends, as you live in this country, as you interact with your community, as you serve in this church, is love the overriding attribute in your life? Which, of course, means selflessness. Does selflessness overshadow the husband-wife relationship that you have? Does selflessness overshadow the parent-child relationship you have? The sibling relationship that you have? The mother-father relationship that you have? Does selfless love overshadow how you interact with your government? Your boss? your neighbors. And here it is, Paul's context, your church. doesn't matter exclusively what gift you have for the church. What matters is that through this knowledge you can serve the church and accomplish your purpose in love. All the gifts are needful. You have at least one of them. What is of greater importance is that you are exercising charity as you exercise your gifts. Not to place false divisions in the church through pride or selfishness. Not to seek a place of personal prominence and personal glory. Not for monetary reward. Selfless love. See, the Corinthian church got this wrong. They were so focused on being the most important, the most godly, the best the most spiritual, that they yielded true godliness and importance for a false earthly perception. As you interact in the church or your family or your place of work or your country, are you living the false perception that says me first? Or are you living in the biblical reality, that which builds in heaven, that which abides forever, that which will not fail of Charity. Brethren, the Christian life is not a game. There are real spiritual battles going on right now. There are people really dying and going to an eternal place of fiery torment called hell. You will really stand before God one day and account for what you've done on this earth. You will see Him face to face. 
And if the life of sac- and sacrifice of Jesus Christ has taught us anything, it has taught us that love is not simply the outworking of emotional expression that we confer upon those that we favor. Love is a choice, and a choice that comes with serious consequences. Love is not always easy, but love is always the more excellent way. We've talked in 1 Corinthians about that which is lawful as opposed to that which is expedient or beneficial or best. If you will apply the words of 1 Corinthians 13 to your heart so that you determine to love one another and to love God according to the biblical expectation of love in 1 Corinthians 13, you will find yourself basking in the glory of spiritual joy and spiritual peace you will have the fullest taste of the divine that man can possibly savor in this life. You will receive the greatest earnest of the inheritance that awaits you in glory one day, and you will have the greatest amount of treasure to throw down at Jesus' feet. But this will mean learning, determining, and striving to love. It will mean sacrifice. See, love is sacrifice. Love is telling people what they need to hear even when they don't want to hear it. Love is serving those who hate us just as we would serve those who are kind to us. Love is neither speaking nor thinking ill of another. Love is placing ourselves in a position of vulnerability so that we might have a greater capacity to serve and bless others. Love is selflessness embodied. Are you willing to love as Christ loved? Are you ready to obey the call of God upon your life to die to self, to live unto Christ, to love one another? May God help us to express the reality of those nine words that we would learn to love. Lord willing, the past two weeks have helped you with that. Now would you take it the next step and would you determine in your heart before God to love? I will love my wife. I will love my children. I will love my parents. I will love my church. I will love my pastor. I will love my employer. I will love my government. And that you would assume all of the responsibilities that biblical love bears. And then would you strive? You're not going to be perfect. But would you strive? Would you press? When you fall, would you get up? Would you keep going? Would you obey? Would you wake up every morning and open the Word of God and determine that you will love as God has asked you to love? Will you pray throughout the day and determine that when so-and-so gets home, or when so-and-so does this, or when I read something in the news about our government, or when my employer says this to me, that I will first, before responding, determine to Love and then respond out of the determination of my heart as the Holy Spirit would lead? Will you do that this morning? Can we take that step toward adulthood? And we'll still just be seeing through the glass darkly. But can we grow up just a little bit? And take that step to love as Christ loved. Let's pray together.